part is that the sad part is that the um, the best parts are always the after discussions that go on random tangents. You know, I fortunately I didn't turn off the recording for that, so that was recorded too. So, um, but isn't that always the case? I don't know. I think that the t- I hope I hope that the topics that I picked to do for self-contained small sugyot did give you a good examples of approaching a halachic topic in a kind of a conceptual way, integrating it with other with broader ideas. That was the goal. I tried to pick something that was simple enough that we could cover it in less in two hours or less, but deep enough that it gave you a sense of what an understanding of a halacha in its frame in its conceptual framework would look like. We did those other random examples off the top of our heads afterwards. Those are ex- it, things that, you know, you could continue with any one of those lines of discussion that we started much, much further than what we discussed, obviously, just like you could continue with the discussion we had before much, much further and integrated and connected to so many other things. And everything is really integrated in, ter- in, the, in the bigger picture. You could integrate all of the ideas of Ta'anit into the broader framework of Sefer Zmanim and the Rambam and all of the different ways in which time and mitzvot relate to one another. There's so many different layers of understanding. And of course, Pe'a that we mentioned integrates with all of the mitzvot tatluyot ba'aretz, all of the mitzvot that relate to tzedakah, all the mitzvot that relate to the land and so on and so forth, that there's so much to, uh, there's so much further that any of those ideas can be taken uh, that's the infinity of the Torah. So you uh, you never get bored. Um, if you have a topic to pursue, you'll find uh, endless uh, new avenues of exploration. So just to, I'm sure many of you are familiar, maybe all of you familiar with the Rambam's comments on uh, a Navi and his ability to uh, to violate mitzvot of the Torah. The, the place where he talks about this first and probably... I think it's pretty well known. He talks about it in the introduction to the Peush uh, of the Mishnah. Um, and over there, you know, it's, it's really, even though he wrote the Peush of the Mishnah when he was younger, and it is uh, more of his earlier thought, the Rambam is one of those rare people that it's very difficult to distinguish his earlier and his later thought. It almost seems like he was... Uh, you know, he had reached his, uh, you know, the pinnacle of a lot of his ideas earlier, early in life, even though he says that he didn't. And I, I, I believe him, but, um, but, and it's impossible to imagine that he lived another 60 years without so many more new insights. But if you read the Peush the Mishnah, his ideas are uh, just as, uh, you know, deep and, and he hints to many of the deepest ideas of his thought in there. So it's really, really worthwhile to know it. The way that, what, what really happened with the Rambam is more of an evolution in his, in his pedagogical ideas than his philosophical ideas, because he originally wanted to work within the system of the Mishnah and the Talmud and his expo- exposition of halacha, and actually in his exposition of Judaism, because originally he wanted to, uh, he wanted to actually present the, um, the, uh, his entire halachic uh, uh, sort of uh, treatment of halacha in the form of a pirush of the Mishnah. And he wanted to present his entire philosophical uh, system in the form of a pirush of the Agadot. So he wanted to work within the Talmudic literature. And it was later that he decided that he would break with that concept and make independent uh, 
works. So that's the big difference that you see in him. So in the Peush the Mishnah, he talks about, which I don't have right in front of me right now. I could I could pull it up on the screen, but I think it would take up unnecessarily take up time. He says the same ideas in Hilchot Yisodei Torah in a different form, even though it's really interesting to see how he develops them in the Peush the Mishnah. So I would I would suggest that everyone has an opportunity to look there. Um, in the uh, in this in the Mishneh Torah where he talks about Nivuah, he does talk about this idea because he says um, he says uh, uh, where is it? Uh, where is where it says? Because the point is that the Navi can, has a limit on what he's allowed to do. And it's very similar actually to the limits that we have in, uh, in other areas of halacha. Where is it? The basic point is that he can say, oh, well, yeah, because I didn't look into the next paragraph. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know why I wasn't looking there. Okay, so he says in the, um, that the Torah obviously is eternal. So, uh, so he says, in other words, if he contradicts, he adds, subtracts, or uh, gives an interpretation of the Torah that is not in accordance with Torah Shebaal Peh, or he suggests that the mitzvot of the Torah are not eternal, but rather they were only temporary and they were meant to be replaced with the Quran or the New Testament or any other uh, system. Uh, he's contradicting the Nevoah of Moshe and therefore he is Chayav Mita. Doesn't matter anything, right? If that's true, what does it mean then that Hashem says, I'm going to give the Jewish people a Navi like you, Moshe? It means that the purpose of the Navi is not to add to the Torah or change it in any way, but to command the people, encourage the people to fulfill the commands of the Torah um, properly. Similarly, if a Navi tells you to do something, a matter that is not halachically prohibited or obligated, but he simply tells you to do some, uh, means like any uh, thing that would normally be your free choice to do it or not to do it. So then uh, you have to listen to him. 
וכן, אם יאמר לנו הנביא, שנודע לנו שהוא נביא, if a Navi comes and we know that this person is a legitimate Navi, and la'avor alachat mikol mitzvot ha'amorot b'Torah. He comes to tell us to violate one of the mitzvot. Or al mitzvot arbe, ben kalot ben chamorot. Whether he tells us to violate uh, a lighter mitzvot or serious mitzvot, lefi sha'a mitzvah lishmo'alo. If it is only temporary, meaning he tells you to do it in one particular circumstance, then you listen to him. This is what the Chachamim learned from the Torah Shebaal Peh. In every matter, if the Navi tells you to do something like Eliyahu did at Har Karmel, you listen. Except for Avodah Zorah, Vehu Shiyeh Adavar Lefi Sha'ah. As long as it's only temporary. Kegon Eliyahu Bar Karmel, Shekriv Ola Bachutz, Vehirushalayim Nebchara. Even though Eliyahu Anavi knew that you weren't allowed to uh, offer Korbanot outside the Beit HaMikdash, he did it one time. And even though it's an Isur Karet, actually. Umipnei Shehu Navi Mitzvah Lishmolo. Okay, because he's a Navi, you have to listen. So hold on. How can we uproot what's written in the Torah? Listen to how he says it. It's very interesting. He says, if they ask him, are you contradicting, are you uprooting what's written in the Torah? So what will the Navi tell you? He'll say, lo, the person who brings the uh, uh, Korban outside of the Beit HaMikdash is Chayav Karet, like Moshe Rabbeinu said. But I will do it today. Bidvar Hashem, by the word of Hashem, in order to contradict the Neviei HaBaal. Notice he has a reason Right? He says it's bidvar Hashem lehachish nevi'eyabal to contradict the prophets of the Baal. Ve'aladir chazot imtzivu kol ha'nevim l'avor al-fisha mitzvah l'shmolein. Okay? If they command us to violate a mitzvah, we listen to them. As long as they don't say to uproot it permanently. Okay? But then he says at the end, even if the Navi came and said, Hashem only commanded me that we worship this Avodazara for a few minutes, you know, it's just, just for one, a couple minutes. Nope, Navi Shekir. Okay, what's the difference? What's the difference? What is the second case? The bigger case. So you could say in this particular case, the mitzvah is not going to be the vehicle, vehicle of how we worship God. It's going to be an alternative vehicle in this one particular case. I'm not saying that the right 
general means to worship Hashem has changed because that would be impossible because it wasn't eternal. But in this particular case, a, uh, a, a, a different route is necessary by the, because of the circumstances, right? But you can't say the objective ever changed. You can't say that worshiping Avodah Zorah is going to be allowed because worshiping Avodah Zorah is not just a mitzvah. It's not just a mitzvah not to worship Avodah Zorah. It's the essence of the whole purpose of the Torah not to worship Avodah Zorah. So, that, so you could never have a situation in which Avodah Zorah could be good. It's never possibly good. In other words, it, observing the mitzvah not to bring korbanot outside the Beit HaMikdash is usually good. 99% of the time, that is the best way to go about things. But there could be a circumstance in which the purpose of the Torah could be furthered by offering a korban outside the Beit HaMikdash. And that's exactly what the Rambam says. The Rambam says, Eliyahu would say, generally speaking, the correct way is not to offer korbanot outside the Beit HaMikdash, but I'm going to do it today, bidvar Hashem, by the word of Hashem, in order in order to reject the Nevi'im of the Baal. In other words, in that case, that was justified. Okay, but he never would say to worship Avodah Zorah because that would contradict the whole essence of the Torah. Where else in Halakha, by the way, do you see such a distinction? Where's the other place that you see such a distinction? Between Avodah Zorah and everything else? There's another very prominent area. Besides besides what? Besides what? No, not besides. Exactly. So in that case, there's never a there's never a situation where um, in other words, to be to worship idols, a person's always obligated Right? In a case where generally speaking, what does the Rambam say about Kiddush Hashem? It's a very interesting thing. When he introduces Kiddush Hashem, he says, it says that Kiddush Hashem, that that every, every Jewish person is obligated in Kiddush Hashem. But if a person, he says, how does it work? If a person comes and holds a gun to your head and tells you to do an Avera, you do the Avera and you don't die because it says V'chai Bahem. Right, that's the price. So he says, the main thing you should do is live. The main thing you should do is live, first of all, because the real Kiddush Hashem is in live, the Jewish people living in accordance with the Torah. That's a bigger Kiddush Hashem than you being in a martyr, okay? But, and that, and, but if they, if there are 10 Jews and the reason why the Goy is doing it is in order to show that you reject the Torah. So then you have to, uh, you have to give up your life even for an ordinary mitzvah. But in no circumstance, even between you and the Goy alone, are you allowed to worship Avodah Zorah? So what's the difference? The point is that when it's a, um, so the, the exact same distinction is operating in both halachot, by the way. Because when a, a goy asks me to break Shabbat and make him and cook him an egg on Shabbat or he's going to kill me, right? I'm not saying I don't believe that Bishul on Shabbat is, uh, is a mitzvah. I'm just saying that it's more important for me to save my life. Okay? But the, uh, so in this particular case, the, 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 the way to worship Hashem is to cook the egg on Shabbat and save my life. That's all. 
But when the goy makes it a, a, a public demonstration and puts me in a position where he's forcing me to do it in front of 10 Jews in order to reject God, that is like an uprooting of the mitzvah. He's basically using it, me as an example that the mitzvah is, but, is betela, that I'm, I'm, I'm negating the mitzvah. He's doing it to make a demonstration. So there, that becomes also a situation of chilul Hashem where I'm, it, it's more than just my action. It's making a statement about the mitzvah itself. It would be like a Navi saying, I'm canceling one of the mitzvot. I'm not just saying in this particular case, the mitzvah is, is, is uh, you're exempt. I'm canceling it. Avodah Zorah is never canceled because Avodah Zorah is the foundation and the purpose of everything is to uproot Avodah Zorah. So it'll never be allowed. But in any case, the Rambam is showing you that now, why do I bring up the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem here? Because what is the whole purpose of the Navi? The whole purpose of the Navi is to facilitate the ultimate objective of Am Yisrael, which is Kiddush Shemo Gadol, like the Rambam says, that called Beit Yisrael Metzuvim al Kiddush Hashem Gadol Azeh. That's the purpose of Am Yisrael is to, uh, uh, is to sanctify God's name in the world. And the Navi is there in order to bring the Jewish people back or to, or to facilitate their achievement of that goal by observing the Torah properly. Occasionally, he might have to pull things out of his tool bag that are not exactly in accordance with the halakha, but he's not uprooting the halakha. He's just saying that in a particular circumstance, the route to Kiddush Hashem is going to be a different one. So it's, it's pretty much exactly the halachot of Kiddush Hashem, just in a different clothing. In other words, it's really the same phenomenon. And, uh, and that's why another good example, although it doesn't really relate to Navi, it's more of a Torah Shabbat thing. But when you see features that are shared between uh, certain halachot, a lot of times there's a deeper connection. So when you see that in the context of Kiddush Hashem, there's an idea of Avodah Zorah is never allowed and, uh, and, and other mitzvot are usually allowed to be broken, but not under certain circumstances where the violation of the mitzvah means more than just that momentary violation. It, it has a deeper significance. It's being used as a demonstration of something deeper. You know, So the same thing is true with the Navi, that he has that distinction in his halachot, that he, uh, he never will tell you to do Avodah Zorah if he's a legitimate Navi. But he will, uh, he could tell you to violate a mitzvah, but never in such a way that would suggest that the mitzvah itself was invalidated. Just to say that in this particular case, the violation was justified. So it's, it's interesting. So, so from that, you can actually see that what the Rambam is showing you by showing those halachot in close proximity to each other is that the Navi's job is Kiddush Hashem. In other words, Am Yisrael's job is Kiddush Hashem. The Navi's job is to facilitate that. Um, in the highest form. And so now that brings us to our Navi Eliyahu, who's having a little bit of difficulty with his job, okay? Now, he is, uh, we are, where are we? Oh, oops, yeah. Why they had to make Melachim Aleph and Melachim two, bed two books, I'll never understand. <laughs> what? Make more money selling two books at a Like art school with the Gemara's of six uh, volumes for each Masechet? Yeah. <laughs> 
Rabbi, have you gotten your booster, your booster yet? I got it when it first came out. I'm saying the booster or the booster. The fourth one? They didn't make it available to regular people yet. They, they, they do move fast here because when they had the third shot, for the first week, it was only for 60 and over. And then by the second week, it was already for my age, which of course made me feel old, but you know, but not that old because then like two weeks later, it was for my kids. So they, they, they roll it out pretty quickly here, but uh, we're only my youngest one is too young because they do everybody over five. So my daughter, Tiferet, just got her second shot. The rest of them were vaccinated before we came. We all, so- here, just the last variant is a pretty good one to get. And, uh, yeah, I think it's the one to get. Yeah. Yeah, right now, and, uh, no one has more than a No, I'm a, I, I heard that it's that this this variant is the is if you're going to get it, it's this one to get the most mild one. Um, anyway, uh, and it seems to be rampant here. There's like, it's all over here too. Like everyone seems to be getting at kids and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like everyone, every next person I talk to is, uh, is, is, is having it. Um, so the, uh, where am I? Okay. So we, we talked about how Eliyahu uh, makes the decree to, for the rain to stop for the drought. And he goes to a, uh, he goes to that river where he's receiving from the ravens, you know, uh, ample sustenance and he's drinking from the uh, river until it dries up eventually. So it's not an option anymore. And what I had mentioned yesterday was that when you look at Eliyahu, you see that, um, yes, Hashem allows Eliyahu to determine, just like he allows other Nevi'im. And this is the chidush of the concept of a Navi that is uh, pretty remarkable and pretty different, I think, than the common person's thought of a Navi as just a passive receptacle of the word of Hashem that just implements whatever he's told. That is definitely not the case of how a Navi is understood in the Tanakh in general, because you even see that the Avot argue with God. I mean, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu argues with Hashem. There's no, you know, there's no sense of the Navi being passive. Even when a mitzvah is given, you see that the Navi is expected to understand and then apply the mitzvah in accordance with his understanding. And even Moshe Rabbeinu made a mistake. Well, like for example, uh, in the case of the um, dedication of the Mishkan where he has an argument with Aaron and Aaron ends up being right in Parashat Shmini. So you see that Moshe Rabbeinu received the mitzvah and yet his interpretation and implementation of it was not correct. He was expected to think it through differently than he did. So, you know, the, the Nevi'im are human and they take the command of God and they, uh, they have to forge a path towards accomplishing their mission. And that, that is their independent role in the unfolding of the divine plan. It's not all passive. So he made this decree, but Hashem is, and we see that Hashem, it sounds silly to say that we see that Hashem is right. I mean, okay. You know, he uh, clearly, this is not the way to go. It's not effective. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't work, okay? That alone doesn't work. In the end, perhaps you could argue that the groundwork that was laid by the drought made the people receptive to Eliyahu's big demonstration with the Nevi'eh Abal, but um, 
definitely the drought itself had no, didn't have any discernible results. So Eliyahu goes, he gets the, the point is that Eliyahu is satisfied with the world in which the tzaddik and the chassid, I'm not talking about a chassid of uh, Breslov, I mean like a, a chassid in the Rambam concept of a chassid, or the, 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 the chazal concept of a chassid, of a chassid that is, uh, you know, a person on a high level of perfection relationship with God, that, that individual is deservant of hashkacha pratit and deserves to have water and food provided to them in, a, in, a, in an ample way. And the people who are wicked deserve to be having a drought. That's, that, you know, Eliyahu doesn't have a problem with that. Now, when the water dries up and it affects him, now he is, still hasn't, after a year, realized that the drought idea didn't really have an impact. It didn't, it didn't penetrate the minds of the people or change their ways at all. Okay, so, so now Eliyahu also, so Hashem moves Eliyahu to the next level, okay? If you think of it as like a, 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 a series of challenges. The first challenge is would Eliyahu reflect upon the disparity between his own luxurious existence, relatively speaking, sitting by the river and having everything taken care of uh, by nature, basically, ravens bringing him his food and all that, would he, uh, would, he, would he reflect upon the suffering of the people and how they weren't really absorbing the lesson he was trying to teach them? It doesn't seem like it gave him any sense of, uh, he did, that he really reflected on that. He just seems to think that that was uh, like how it should be, that he was receiving that, um, that support. So now the water dries up and he goes in search of sustenance again. And, uh, and he goes to, uh, Hashem says to him, go to this place, Tzarfat, uh, in Tzidon, and uh, it's, a, it's a place in the land of Tzidon, uh, I have commended a widow there to sustain you. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that, um, that Hashem told the widow to sustain Eliyahu, as is going to become, become clear. It doesn't mean that Hashem told her that. It's like it says in the book of Yonah, Vayomer Hashem Ladag. You know, it doesn't, when he says, I commend it, it means I arranged for it. It doesn't mean that he actually told the Almana about this, okay? Now, Okay? Sounds very familiar, uh, reminiscent of, a, of an episode in the, uh, in the Torah of the Mekoshesh Etzim. But um, the... Uh, he says, excuse me, can I have a little bit of water in a vessel to drink? So Eliyahu is a little bit thirsty because he's been, you know, on, he's been traveling and doesn't have any water. Now, why do you, now the Mikosheshet Etzim reference is very, is very interesting, very intriguing, actually. I haven't seen anybody pick up on that, um, on that interesting sort of uh, uh, allusion. I, I can't imagine that's by accident. I can't imagine it's by accident that the Mekosheshet Etzim and the Mekosheshet Etzim in the Torah is by accident. I, I never really thought about it before, actually. I don't think I ever noticed it before. We read these Nevi'im very quickly. I never saw anybody talk about it. But it's interesting. Why was the Mekosheshet Etzim, why was the Mekosheshet Etzim doing that in the Midbar? Do you know why all of a sudden, why, all of a sudden this guy decides to do Chilul Shabbat? Why? 
What? Yeah, well, what happened right before the episode of the Mikosheh It was the Chaitam Raglim. In other words, the idea was that the Mikosheh said, what difference does it make what I do now? Right? It's like, uh, we're all Chayav Mita anyway. We're all going to die in the Midbar anyway. Uh, what's the point? What's the relevance of, uh, of any of these mitzvot, of Shabbat, of this and that? If we're all condemned, we're all dead men walking anyway in the Midbar. What, what difference does it make what my uh, Shemirat Shabbat? So it, it might be, I mean, I don't know, it might be a similar sense of desperation. This lady is walking around, you know, collecting wood, feeling a sense that things are hopeless. And it's interesting because she says, we're going to die anyway. She actually says that. And it kind of like reminds me of what the attitude of the Jews wandering for those 38 years in the desert must have felt after they were condemned to walk around. The guy's like, I might as well put myself out of my misery sooner and, and violate Shabbat and get killed because what's the point? I'm going to walk here for 38 years for what? You know, for, for what purpose? What's the relevance? What was the sin of the Nekoshesh Shabbat. What what's the chilul of gathering like wood? Uh, some people say it was because... Uh, it, it, it's different melachot that it potentially could be because um, gathering together piles of vegetation is one of the melachot but also uh, it could also be that he was he was detaching it from the ground so it's not exactly clear but the you know there's a machlok that the Gemara talks about what exactly it was but either way I always thought that the story basically suggests a sense of hopelessness you know that why all of a sudden is a chilul shabbat because what's the point of living when you're dying anyway, it's like uh, we're just going to die in the midbar anyway. So, um, so uh, anyway, he asked for water. Oh, by the way, uh, when you're on your way to get me a drink, could you also get me some bread? Right? By the life of God, if I had even one cake. All I have is like a spoonful of flour in a container, and a tiny amount of oil in a jar. I'm going to make it for myself and my son right now with these etzim uh, that I gathered. Then we'll eat it and we'll die, meaning we're starving to death anyway. We don't have any, so that's why it kind of reminds. Maybe it's similar to the Mekoshesh team. I'm not sure, but it, I never thought of it before. But it could be the. Um, but the uh, the idea is there's like a sense of desperation. Now, why do you think Hashem sent Eliyahu and Abi to be sustained by a lady who's starving to death? How's that going to help? She doesn't have anything. Right. So he, when he was living by the river, okay, he was isolated, totally isolated from the suffering that the Jewish people are enduring all along as he's, you know, his needs are taken care of. Now he's going back into society and he sees the actual results of this drought that this Isha Almana, which normally an Isha Almana and a son, which is a Yatom basically is an orphan, doesn't have a father. These are the people that we're supposed to have the most mercy and compassion for because they are the least um, taken care of in society. And you see that they're starving and as a result of this drought. 
And so Eli Hashem is telling Eliyahu to go to be sustained by this Ishal Mana precisely so that he can recognize, acknowledge the extent of the damage that the drought is uh, causing to the people. Now we know that Eliyahu Navi is not the type of a person to quickly let go of an idea that he's very committed to. So the, and, and so he's not going to be a, he's not just going to be a, a pushover and become a softy and start uh, and and change it change so quickly. What does he say? Don't worry, don't worry about giving me your food. Go and do what you're going to do. Just when you make the cake for you and your son, take out first a cake for me. And then do for yourself and your son. Okay. Right, so what does that mean? I don't recall Hashem actually saying that. I don't think that Hashem did say that. Right, it's another example of Eliyahu and Navi saying, first of all, he's blaming Hashem for not bringing rain when it's his own, uh, his own thing. But again, the, way, the Navi is the one who formulates the manner in which the Ashkacha manifests itself, like we said. So he says, look, because you're, in, you're it's your lucky day, ma'am. You, you won the lottery, you and your son, because you just met the only person actually worthy of being sustained during this drought. And it just so happens that I'm coming to stay with you. So therefore, you're going to have a blessing that the container of flour will not be finished and the oil will not be finished until the drought is over because you're going to be in charge of taking care of me. And because you're in charge of taking care of me, you have a zechut. So therefore, when you feed me first, by feeding him first, it's basically a way of saying that you're serving the tzaddik. Okay, you're serving, you're being misharet, the, uh, the, the one who is, uh, who is uh, deservant of ashkacha pratit. That gives you a zechut that your parnasah will keep coming to you because you're sustaining me. Okay. So that's the way that Eliyahu and Navi sees what's happening here. Because Hashem said, I commanded an Ishal Mana Lechalkelecha. Right? So what does Eliyahu and Navi think? That means Hashem wills for this woman to be the vehicle of sustaining me. And in the Zechut of her sustaining me, she is so fortunate that she gets to live too. Okay? That's the, that's the way that he presents it to her. And again, he doesn't seem particularly concerned about her fate. He doesn't seem particularly particularly to think about the more general uh, suffering of Am Yisrael under the drought. He just sees a woman who has the zechut of sustaining the tzaddik, sustaining the navi, and therefore will be the recipient of shefa brachavat lecha, like all of the rabbis that you give tzedakah tell you you're going to... Uh, receive when you give them money at the kota right so the um so that so therefore he says, says you're in your it's your lucky day uh three-piece suit guy has come to you you will get you will have lots of bachavat lacha if you give me the uga first that's all right that's that's the only deal now what happens um and don't worry he's looking very well he's uh he's doing very well 
So, um, so I haven't seen him lately because I, I, I don't often go down to the Kotel. I used to go to the Kotel to pray every time I came, but because of the check, you know, like it's easier, the Ramban shul has a minyan that's easier to get to because it's in, the, you don't have to go all the way down. So I, a lot of times I go there. Also right uh, across the street from what? It's also right across the street from what? Exactly. Why? Why leave? Why leave the pre- the, the premises? Yeah. Um, so the uh, so so that's the that's the formulation that so in other words, Eliyahu Navi is still operating the formulation that the only worthy person of being spared from this drought is himself. Now he may be right from the perspective of midat tadit. Okay, I'm kind of presenting it comically because from our perspective, we know in the end that Eliyahu Navi is corrected for this. But according to strict midat tadit, he may well have been right. There's, I don't think that Eliyahu Navi is wrong insofar as his yidiyat Hashem and his understanding. He was he's one of the highest level nevi'it. He obviously understood very well what the Midat Adin demanded of the people. So I don't think for a moment that he was wrong about that. The question just is, is there an alternative way to go about things or to perceive things or to accomplish uh, a turnaround here? So in any case, or it says, it really should say, yeah, he vote. And her household... So yamim again means what? Whenever it's by itself, yamim means a year, right? So therefore we see that they, he lived with her for a year. He lived at the, at the Nachal for a year. He lived with her for a year. In all of these cases, he still sees that he, he still hasn't ventured outside of the realm of thinking that his main goal is to survive the drought and wait for the Jewish people to wake up and hear his message and come to him. That's the that, that that's basically what he and anyone who basically does help him out and support him, they also have the zechut of being sustained. But chutzmizek, except for that, uh, you know, the rest of the people uh, can't expect any better under midat adin, because the midat adin is operating. Now again, you can understand that. The way that the Mefarshim say that it means that there really was a Dvar Hashem specifically about that. Or it could be that Dvar Hashem Asher Diber Biyad Eliyahu means that it's the Dvar Hashem because Eliyahu said it. Because Hashem said you're going to be sustained by this widow and Eliyahu Navi decided that the way in which that would manifest itself was, uh, was, it, it was through the uh, miracle of the Kemach and the miracle of the oil. Okay. So the so 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 far one year one passes he hasn't really changed much year two passes he's now living with this family but still hasn't ventured outside of the sphere of his own his own uh, sustenance his own uh, survival. So now we come to what seems to be the uh, major turning point of the story which is that the son of the lady becomes sick. Now we can imagine that living on just pure carb diet of flour and oil and a little bit of water probably didn't do this growing boy much good. There could be, uh, could be reason why he was sick. 
but um, he becomes ill. And uh, he had no soul left in him. He was so weak. What is your problem? Basically, is like, what do you, you know, like, what do you want from my life? You know, like you would say in English, like, God, man of God, you came here. You came here to recall my sin and to kill my son. In other words, they felt that Eliyahu Navi, Eliyahu Navi really personified the Midat Din and everything that he did. He probably wasn't a very warm and fuzzy guy. I can't imagine that he would be. He's a very, right? So like, if you recall a little bit later on, when Elisha is chosen as the next Navi, Elisha is like, wait a second, I want to go kiss my parents and have a barbecue with them before I leave to go be your disciple. And Eliyahu and Navi is like, whatever, you know? He's, he, he's not very impressed. It's like, that's the, this guy is my successor? You know, look at the Yeridata Dorot, like uh, happening here, that uh, this guy is supposed to be my successor. He's like some kind of a, you know, he's a lame uh, you know, emotional guy, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's very pathetic instead of being like me that you have to be, he had an idea that you have to be a pure, uh, this sort of a pure stoic personality, I guess is the, is the right word in order to be, uh, in order to really be a mouthpiece for God. So she saw him as uh, not an asset to the household, even though he was in his zikhut, they were being sustained, but she saw it as a uh, as a negative, and she saw the, the sickness of her son as uh, a result of the uh, of the presence of this navi in their midst. That somehow he had brought to them through his the same judgmental kind of an attitude had brought upon them this uh, plague. Maybe because uh, she felt that they did not they were not worthy in his eyes. Vayomer Elena tenit what. You say the boy is dead? Do you mean that he's fully dead or not fully dead? Well, you know, uh, like it says in Princess Bride, maybe he was only mostly dead. But it says, Lo no trabo nishama. So the Rambam, you know, the Rambam says in the Moran of Uchim, a very controversial thing about how, you know, there is. He says it in a very Rambam way. You know, there is a certain person who said that, you know, maybe when it says that they died in the case of Elisha and Eliyahu, it's not like they really died, but they were kind of like knocked out, you know. But, but he mentions this as a side point and he doesn't really endorse it, but he doesn't really not endorse it. So um, it's, uh, he, he kind of, he kind of, floats the idea that it could be that when it says lo notral bonishama, that it means he was like unconscious, but not necessarily dead. Um, right, in fact, I think the Radak says, yesh mi shomer shelo met mikol v'chol, ela haya cholio chazak meod an shenetran shimato. That... Uh, he wasn't breathing. You couldn't tell his breath because he was so uh, he was so weak. Yeah. 
Masood is making a point to say he's really sick up until the yeah, because it's weird to say lo no trabone shama, it doesn't just say vamet. All right, that goes back to saying about that point that they told me died like everyone else, right. Yeah, but I'm not so convinced that the Radak really, uh, I don't know. The way he says it to the discerning eye is a little suspect. What does that mean? No, I don't know. I'm not, so, I'm not so convinced that the Radak was so convinced. It sounds like he's like uh, throwing a bone to the, uh, the Hamon Am. It's like uh, Kim Moshe Sovrim. I, I never I, saw the Radak say Kim Moshe Sovrim B'nei Ha'olam before. <laughs> Did you? I mean, you read a lot of Radak, uh, Dan. Did you ever see that? Honestly, I've never seen Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Um, I, I think that the Radak is winking with one eye and uh, when he says that, I'm not sure. I don't want to I don't want to. Uh, I don't want the Radak in the Bedin uh, Shalmala to uh, be judging me and saying that I'm misrepresenting uh, him and and uh, twisting his words. But I'm I'm just not 100% convinced. But the Rambam, for sure, in the Morning of Uchim, in his characteristic style, gives you this really out there perush of I forget who it is. You know, like some uh, perush that says that the uh, even in the case of Elisha, where it literally says he died. That oh no, he was just uh, very unconscious. You know. And then he, but he just like leaves it there. He doesn't really say that that's correct. Oh, you know, some people say this. I don't know. Um, what, I'm, I would say that the Radak is uh, giving you, uh, uh, he's, doing a, he's doing a Rabbi Ben Chaim, as, a, as I would say. You know, Rabbi Ben Chaim comes and says, the Ralbag says a very strange thing. You know? <laughs> Uh, literally on the same day, Rabbi Ben Chaim told us in the morning, the Ralbag says an amazing, really, really good thing. It's definitely correct that uh, that the sun didn't really stand still in the times of Yoshua. It just means that the war was really fast, which I explained why uh, years ago, why I think that's actually the pshat, actually, of the of the text. And not even in Josh, it's really the pshat. And then and then, and, and, the, and Rabbi Ben Chaim even showed me, which I had never seen, that the Rambam actually alludes to that also in the Morning of Bukhim, because somehow Rabbi Ben Chaim reads the Morning of Bukhim and remembers like every word of it. Like it, like, like it was like three words that I probably barely noticed. And he noticed and showed me that, that the Rambam uh, alludes to that same thing. I never noticed it, but he, but then like the next day in YU, he told the students, the Ralbag says a very strange thing. <laughs> the same thing that he told us was very good. He told them it was very strange. Or one time we were in the shiur and he said, we were talking about Yonah. And he said, you know that, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ibn Kaspi in the Sefer Yonah says the whole thing was a dream. Ah, the whole whale thing, the whole thing was a dream. Not just... Possibly not just the uh, part with the whale, meaning like the whole story could just be a dream. 
because it starts out by saying, and the Rambam says that a lot of times that could mean the whole thing is a dream. She said, yeah, it could be the whole thing is a dream. And anyway, the whole thing with the fish, it doesn't really make any sense and all that. So, uh, so he, he, was, he was saying, yeah, it makes sense. And anyway, it doesn't take away from the truth of the story because the truth of the story is in the message of the story, not in the literal meaning of whether it happened or not. That's what Rabbi Ben Chaim was saying. But then one of the people on the back was like, but Rabbi Ben Chaim, how could you say that? You know, what, what are you saying? That the that the that wasn't really that the whale didn't really swallow. And isn't it true? And he's like, actually, no, it, it could be true. You know, there were stories about whales that swallowed people and they came out. There was a story in the news one time. And literally like said the opposite thing, like within five minutes. So, you know, that's the, the this is a derech of the chachamim of the uh of the uh, Rishonim also, that the Rambam does that all the time. That's what they call esoteric writing. You know, you, 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 you float out the idea that you really think, and then you quickly retract it and cover it up with a lot of very religious sounding things that people will not, uh, that the people who needed to hear that one phrase that you said, they, they heard it. And, and then the people who, uh, the people who will be, whose emunah will be undermined by, the, uh, by an idea that you're radical, heard all the other stuff, and they needed to hear that, and it reassured them in their emunah, and they just forgot about the thing that you said that sounded off in the beginning. So it's, it's a good method. Anyway, that's, that's to me, I don't know. I, I, can't, uh, I can't say what the Radak uh, for sure, but that's a very bizarre ending. Kim Moshe Sofrin B'nei I don't know. Anyway, um, the, uh, in any case, it doesn't matter. I, I agree that actually the language of the text sounds like the, bo the boy didn't die because it just says uh, that he didn't have any nishama left. It sounds like he didn't have breathing, right? He was very low, his breathing was very low, but I, I don't know. Anyway, what'd he do? So um, he, he says, oh, 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 oh. what happened? You just did the same thing. That's a very good shot. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems to fit with the text, you know. It's not that important. It's not that important, but. Uh, it sounds like the Yeah, well, it, it's it's the difficulty is that when Eliyahu speaks, it sounds like he's reviving him from being dead, but the text doesn't just come straight out and say he died, it says he was sick to the point that he didn't have nishama, and she, you know, it's not clear. I mean, it's not clear. So uh, it doesn't really even matter. Uh, you know, it's not like the Eliyahu and Avi's miracles are limited. So, he lays him out on his own bed. Now look at the first filah of Eliyahu and Avi, uh, here he says uh, he says he's arguing with Hashem straight out he, this almana that that I'm living with you were evil to her to kill her son what does that sound like Eliyahu's concern is Right, he's emphasizing that it's the almana that I'm living with. You you messed up my 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 situation because now she's telling me Elohim, get out of here because you're ruining my life. Why did you have to do that? I had a perfectly good situation. 
every year you have to send me on the run again with some other uh, thing. You know, first you dried up my nachal, now you're killing the uh, members of the household that I'm living with. That's a little bit, that's exactly the opposite meaning though, because Moshe Rabbeinu is upset because his actions unwittingly caused harm to the people instead of helping them. Eliyahu is really not that concerned about the people right now, it doesn't seem like, right? But you're right, the language is similar. There's a lot of similarities between Eliyahu and uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. He goes to the mountain, Har Chorev, he stay, you know, there's, there's a lot. So that you're right, though, that language, for sure, it sounds like Moshe Rabbeinu. The diff- but the contrast, actually, maybe what you're hitting on is exactly the point. Because the contrast really underscores what Eliyahu's blind spot is. He's saying, but he's saying it because it's affecting himself. Right? Whereas Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, I want it to be an agent of something positive and Lama Hareota. Right? So he wanted to benefit from the Israelis. Like you can see that throughout the whole story also. The whole time I was trying to make him go the same path Moshe Rabbeinu went, yeah. so that he can get to the conclusions that Moshe Rabbeinu went to, and at the end he just says, no, Moshe, I'm good for you, and I don't, and yeah. you go this bad. He's too resistant. Moshe Rabbeinu, the response is always the people are good. Just hang out and see press. It's like the exact opposite reaction of Moshe yeah, Rabbeinu yeah. The irony, the irony of Moshe Rabbeinu is that you would have expected that, and I think we have a stereotype, that the greater the person's knowledge of God and the higher level they're on, the less tolerant they would be of people's not following the derech Hashem and being ignorant and being, you know, and being resistant to the message. But it's like the opposite. The great Moshe Rabbeinu is like the most, uh, the strongest advocate for mechilan, slichan, kapra for Am Yisrael when they're going against everything he's trying to work with. He himself gets frustrated and angry with them, but he never wants them to be punished harshly. He always advocates to protect them. When you would, when we have a stereo, I think we have an image in our mind that the people who are these great Talmud Chachamim. They have like no tolerance for uh, people who are below them, you know, whom they perceive as the ignorant Hamon Am. But it's opposite. I mean, look at people who are truly great Chachamim. Are the opposite. I, I think of like Ravadi Yosef, his whole life he dedicated to trying to help people out of ridiculous problems, half of them they created for themselves, you know? And he he he, he tries to dedicate his life to try to solve their problems and uh, and help them. He gave Shiurim to the Hamon Am on a very basic level when he could have been learning at a much higher level, but he felt a tremendous sense of responsibility to help everyone. And uh that's the that's why the Rambam says in the Morin of Uchim that when uh, when Yaakov Avinu sees the Malachim, he sees the Malachim Olim v'Yordim, and Moshe and the Rambam says Olim v'Yordim because the Nevi'im attain a great level of knowledge of God as the Olim, and they come down to share that knowledge and use it to guide the people as the Yordim. So it's a uh, yeah, that that's a true Chacham. A person who's intolerant of people is definitely not a real chacham because he's not a person who is uh, who is following the darchei Hashem because Hashem doesn't follow that approach of uh, absolute midat adin. So if a person really understands the ways of Hashem, he's going to uh, 
be a person who is and trying to bring people slowly to an understanding of Hashem. He's not going to be a my way or the highway type of person. That's a sign of, a, of someone who isn't really a, uh, a chacham, I think. But um, anyway, the... Uh, so what happens? So Vayitmoded Aleyeled Shaloshpami. He like he he sort of stretches out over the kid three times. This was the early Hatzala approach. They don't use this uh, technique anymore um, to revive people. I know they I saw, I saw. Hopefully everything is okay. So they uh, so he called out to Hashem by Yomar Hashem Eloi Tashevna Nefeshayeledaze al Kirbo. Okay. So notice the difference in the language, okay? The first time he said, why were you evil to, the, uh, uh, to this woman that I'm living with? And there was no answer. There was no answer. But then when he lies down on him and he says, restore the soul of this child within him, then the child lives. Vayishma Hashem bekol Eliyahu fatashov Okay, what changed from the first statement of Eliyahu to the second statement of Eliyahu? Or was it just a reiterating of the first statement? The first one had more chutzpah. Right. He was definitely challenging God more in the first one. He also involves himself. Whereas the second statement is just restore the child's life. He's looking at the child as a separate entity who deserves a chance at life, who's entitled to live. Restore his life. That's it. Not anything to do with himself. In fact, lying down on him is kind of like a way of saying he's dead with the child. He's not standing above the child and kind of saying, hey, bring this kid back so I can keep living here. There's a sense of identification and empathy with the child in the way that he does it. And he's saying this child in his own right deserves a, uh, uh, deserves a, uh, a life, deserves to live. But that's a change in Eliyahu because it's the first time that he's acknowledged another person besides himself has a right to live and that God should give them life. Seemingly a big chidush for Eliyahu. Seem not such a big chidush, maybe from our perspective, but in terms of how Eliyahu has been operating up till now, it's the first time. With even with the Ishal Mana, he only um, he was he was viewing her survival as an extension of his own, as a facilitator and an extension of his own. Here he sees the child as a child who is a creature of God and deserves to live. Restore his life. But of course, what does that open the door to? It opens the door to new vista for Eliyahu. It opens the door to Hashem telling Eliyahu, you take care of Right, exactly. Well, what about the rest of the kids out there? What about the rest of the people out there then? If you can see that this child has the right to live and survive, so you have to open your eyes beyond that. Sometimes, in other words, I think it's a, an interesting thing. And maybe maybe some of you, those of you who are parents can identify with this and those of you who will be, will eventually identify with this. That um, when you are, when you have children, I felt at least in my own experience, 
I don't think I was ever a mean guy in my life, but um, I never was had the empathy for another person until I had kids to the level to the level that I did when I was a parent. Meaning, I think it's the first time that you experience a sense of empathy and concern for another life that it's equal to or greater than your concern for yourself is when you have a child. That was my experience, I feel like. You know, even a spouse, you love them so much, but the, I don't, I didn't feel the same as having a child. I felt that the child was a different level. And so when, when you, when you're able to see, sometimes what happens is the experiences that you have in your family can shape what you're able to, uh, meaning once you have a, once you're a parent, I think it's true. Maybe you can agree, disagree, but once you're a parent, anytime you hear a story in the news about harm done to children, it really upsets you more than it would if you weren't a parent because you identify with the parents of the child that were harmed and you, I, you imagine the child is like your child. It, it's, it's different. And so what, your own experience in family opens your eyes, just like deal and God forbid, when you have evil, a person has mourning in their family and they lose a relative, it makes them sensitive to grief and loss beyond their family. Because now when somebody else experiences grief and loss, uh, they can identify with them and help them. And they can understand what they're going through. And uh, I, I, I heard that Rabbi Bitton once say that uh, because he had cancer, you know, that one of the blessings of the uh, experience was that he, you know, he always had congregants that dealt with cancer and, and, and things like that, that he had to support them. But experiencing something yourself firsthand changes your perspective and gives you a more of an ability to relate to those who are having an experience that you had. So Eliyahu has become part of this family. Through being part of this family, suddenly, like in one of those bad movies, you know, the guy who was just there for his own selfish reasons all of a sudden really takes a liking to the family or the members of the family or the kids in the family or whatever like happens in those feel good movies, you know, where somebody starts out being a really nasty guy, but turns out like opening his heart to the family and blah, blah, blah. That's what really is happening in the story of Eliyahu that through this child, he's now able to see the value of a life other than his own. That doesn't mean that the child is a great tzaddik. It doesn't mean that the child is a great tamil chacham. I'm sure Eliyahu tried to share whatever wisdom he had with this family. The reason why I believe that is because I don't think it's possible for somebody with avat Hashem not to share their knowledge of Torah. It's not possible. When, when, when you have a passion for, for knowledge of God, you're, you can't hold it back. You have to share it. So I'm sure he shared it with them. But I don't think the reason why he cared about the child being resuscitated was only because he thought he was his protege. It was because he saw value in the child's life. So once you're able to see value in the child's life, it's right next to you. What about the child that's on the street right now suffering much worse because of the drought? And what about the adults? That opens his mind to seeing something beyond. So this is a training program what Eliyahu intended to bring the Jewish people around with his Midat Adin, 
Instead, Hashem brings Eliyahu around through uh, a different uh, course of obstacle course to bring him to a different place where he can interact with the Jewish people in a more productive way, constructive way. And so now he picks him up. What happened? What? Everything okay? So basically, Allah needed that year with the Is it what? We're saying that Eliyahu needed that year to be with him, like in the house with the That's what it sounds like, right? He had to identify with these other people to the point that he was able to see the value in them independently of himself. And now, look at what happens here. Yeah? Sorry, no, never gets married, never has kids. is really a mysterious guy. We don't know where he came from, who his parents are. He doesn't seem to have any wife or children. If he's really Pinchas, then obviously he must be a uh, he must be a Kohen. It's interesting because Chazal obviously say Eliyahu is Pinchas. Everybody knows that, right? But the, it's easy to interpret that midrash metaphorically and say it's because Kano Kineti. It's because of the Kina of Pinchas <laughs> and the Kina of uh, Eliyahu that they're the same personality. Right? That they're same personality. But it's interesting. And I think the Ibn Ezra says he doesn't accept it, but the Ralbag actually says he does. He thinks it was really the same person. He says, because Pinchas lived an extremely long time. He lived all the way to the times of the Shoftim. And he says, Eliyahu also never really died. And later on, in Divrayim, much later on after his death, he sends a letter to the king the Mikhtav Me Eliyahu, from across the grave, like there's something about Eliyahu he like never dies. So I don't know, the Ralbag takes it literally, seemingly. Uh, it would have been easier to take it metaphorically. In any case, Rabbi. we don't know a thing about where Eliyahu came from, where he disappeared to. We don't know anything. What happens now? Sorry, Rabbi. Yeah. The, the, all of the opinions that, that take that Midrash literally uh-huh. What's so if if you want to say that's true, mm-hmm. so why does the Navi change his name? Like, what's the reasoning for why I, his name yeah, is? Yeah, I, yeah, they don't. I don't recall. I don't recall anybody addressing that problem. I, I thought of it also. I don't recall anybody addressing that particular difficulty. Like, why then is his name not Pinchas? So I changed to Eliyahu. Right. It's, I mean, it's the same thing with Shifra yeah. and Pua that we discussed, you know, yeah. in, in Shemot, yeah. right? It's like with all of these times they say it, it's like, then what's the point of the the, the, the name change? Like, what's right. that trying to teach yeah, you? Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, over there, you could say, well, because it means um, it's uh, it's a reference to their function and not to their uh, and not to their um, uh, uh, to their their personal name. That's that's how the Chazal explained. They say that it's referring to what they did, not who, not their personal names. 
So it's not as bad of a contradiction because they're saying that really that was the name of their job. It wasn't a name, it wasn't another name that they had. But but by Pinchas and Eliyahu, you're right. Unless Eliyahu, unless they'll say Eliyahu was his nickname, because what Eliyahu means, Hashem is God, that's it. You know, it's like some kind mm-hmm. of a name that indicates the absoluteness of what Eliyahu was about. You know, something like that. But I, I, I don't remember having heard anyone uh, explain that, you know, answer that problem, but I, I haven't done such extensive research. Um, it is unusual. It's especially unusual that the Raldbag takes it literally. Um, and it's, uh, and, but there are, if I remember correctly, the Ibn Ezra does not. He says it's not true. But, I, but you can understand the concept behind the comparison of the two, that's for sure. Um, yeah. So Eliyahu takes the child, he brings him downstairs, gives him back to his mom. What a softy, what a, what a, he's, he's, you know, he's such a, he's just such a touchy-feely type of guy. Definitely candidate for being one of those mall Santas, you know? Look, your child is alive. You know, that's it. But Tomer Aishayel Eliyahu, Ata Zeyadati, Ki Ish Elohim Ata, Udvar Hashem Beficha Emet. Very strange. Up till now, with the magical flour and oil, I wasn't convinced. You know? Uh, it was a coincidence. But now that you resuscitated my son, I see that you are Isha Elohim. What is she talking about? She just called him Isha Elohim before him too, by the way. When she yelled at him, she said, Malivalach Isha Elohim. So uh, what do you mean now I know that you're uh, the God, man of God and the word of God in your mouth is true? That would be weird. So, I can't. I can't explain why she said that he was going to be before, but it fits very much in line with what we've been saying up until now. That, that part of the problem with Yahweh is that his words, his words aren't, aren't like uh, like the rest of the like uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Yahweh has that problem. Like you can't listen to him because he's so rough. Yeah. Right now she's saying, now I know that the, the your your because you're sympathetic now, you're sympathetic to my case. Now I know that you really I have such I have such mixed feelings about Eliyahu, you know. On one hand, he's kind of like uh you know difficult to handle, and you're like he can't be like sensitive, but on the other hand, he's like uh I don't know. He's like uh, one of those uh, cowboys from the, you know, what's his name? Uh, Clint Eastwood or something. I don't know. He has this like rugged, no nonsense attitude. There's something cool about it. There's something like, there is something refreshing about a no nonsense guy. You kind of need somebody like that sometimes. It's just that he's not able to serve in the capacity that he needs to. 
You know, he's, he's too much. I don't know. He's like Steven Seagal or something. Uh, he's like one of these guys of men of few words, like a stoic personality, you know, when, with it, which doesn't match the needs of the generation so well. You know, it's, it's a, uh, but, but yeah, she says, now I know you're a man of God and the word of Hashem in your mouth is true. What does the Radak say? He says, uh, what does he say? He says two things here. Oh, that one is that it's two things that I see that you're a man of God because uh, you brought my life, my son back to life. And also I knew already that your word was true because you uh, got, gave me the flour and the oil. That's the first interpretation he gives. I don't know. I don't think that I, I these interpretations seem a little forced to me. I, I would have thought that... Um, I don't think that she really means what the shot that she didn't think he was a Navi before. That's not possible. She called him Isha Elohim before. And split, placing the Pasuk in half. Yeah, I don't. And also she called him Isha Elohim before. I don't think that she means that she didn't know he was Isha Elohim in the sense that she didn't think he was a Navi. I think that what she means is that she didn't think he was, she didn't see him as a genuine servant of God until now because he wasn't a person who did, who cared for God's creatures. In other words, she said, it's like, it's like, you'll say like, uh, uh, you know, a, a person will, will hear a story about a great Talmud Chacham who sits and learns 24 hours a day in, uh, in some ivory tower, uh, Beit Midrash, but when they hear a story about a rabbi who's a great bal chesed and goes and reaches out and helps people, they say, that's a rabbi. That, that's a rabbi, a person who does that, that they do chesed. Okay, why? Because they're saying, or, you know, that's a religious person. The person who goes and he's delivering meals to people that are in need, that's a religious person. Uh, not the person who's sitting in the Beit Midrash. Meaning both of them are religious, but the idea is that the, 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 uh, a person recognizes someone who's holech b'darchei Hashem as a real Eved Hashem. Not a person who, yes, he has knowledge. And yet, I, I'll never forget something a guy told me one time, uh, years and years ago, when I was much younger, a rabbi in Maryland, and this Australian guy, very smart guy, very, very bright guy, once he said, uh, he, he said, look, I, I'd love to give you, I've, I've worked with a lot of rabbis. I'd, I want to give you some insight and some advice and all that. I'm like, sure. It was such an impactful conversation. Like it, it, it changed my life, I think, uh, uh, talking to the guy. Like it definitely changed my perspective on being a rabbi for the rest of my life. He said, we we're in my office. I said, look, everybody expects the rabbi to know a lot of stuff. So if you know a lot, the fact, if a rabbi knows a lot of stuff, that's not special because you wouldn't be a rabbi if you didn't know stuff because that's, that's how you become a rabbi from knowing stuff. So if a rabbi is very scholarly, that doesn't make him a great rabbi. That just makes him like, that's just the, that's the, like the baseline of what we expect a rabbi to be. What makes rabbis special is that they connect with people and they reach out and they care and they show interest in the lives of people and they try to make people's lives better. That's what, when people will say, that's a great rabbi. 
But if you're a person who just comes in and you just sort of like say a speech and you leave and you have no relationship with the people, then you'll never become this great rabbi. And I thought that was such an interesting piece. Yeah, it gave me other advice too. I can't remember much of the other advice. I remember that it was very interesting. I probably wrote it down somewhere. I don't remember what, I, it wasn't like connected to a specific event. It was just like, oh, uh, I, you know, I, I would love to talk with you and give you some thoughts about your rabbinic career because I was young, you know? And he probably observed some things that I did and realized like I put a lot of emphasis on my speeches and my classes and not as much emphasis on like outreach to people at that point in the beginning of my career. And he was giving me this advice, but it was so true. And I, and I see it from my experience in the Mashadi community too, because, um, because yeah, I was in the Beit Midrash for many years and teaching and, and giving speeches. And, you know, people generally gave me nice feedback about my speeches. I mean, they're not going to be rude and tell me that they were bad. So I, I you know, it's, they're very polite. Mashadi people in general are very dignified people, classy people. They're not going to tell you if your speech stinks. So, uh, so I, I gave speeches, I gave classes, people came to Shiurim and things like that, and that was all fine. But I never really felt that I was one of the rabbis of the community until I, until I started doing the Levayot. Because um, that was really a turning point. Because then everybody knew who I was. And everybody, I got an opportunity to be a helper to everyone. And... Um, and that was what really gave them, they didn't care that much what, I think because I did that, then when I would get up and speak, they would listen because they remember the time that I helped them at their family's uh, time of need, you know? So yeah, maybe it actually opened their heart to listen to Divrei Torah and that would be wonderful. But I think it was, that was how they perceived, oh, this person is really what a rabbi is. They go to the cemetery and help us in our time of bereavement. You know, that, that to the average person is being the person of, of, of the holech bedarchei Hashem. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm sure I was very imperfect in what I did and probably could have done much, much better. But, but the fact that I had the opportunity to do that kind of thing, whether, I, you know, and I, I hopefully did my best, but the fact that I was able to do that sort of thing definitely enabled me to, um, to connect with so many more people in a way that they would be like, yeah, this is what our community rabbi is, somebody who does this. I think that's definitely true. That, you know, that that's, that's the perception. And when you think about, if you, if you think about the rabbis of synagogues who are the most beloved rabbis of synagogues, it's usually the rabbis that do the most chesed. Almost every rabbi knows something and can teach classes and is interesting and, uh, you know, has interesting things to say and good speeches and, and, and things like that and, and and you can talk with them and learning and ask them questions and stuff like that. But the rabbis who are the ones that usually have an impact on their community are the ones who do chesed type of things. And I think that's really what she's saying. Now I see you're a man of God. Not that before I thought you didn't know have you diat Hashem. Not that before I, didn't, I thought that uh, you didn't have uh, a, a relationship with Hashem or knowledge of Hashem or anything like that, but that before I didn't see you were really an emissary of Hashem because I didn't see you following the darche Hashem and you're dealing with the briot of Hashem 
in your avata briot, it wasn't there. And if you see the 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 great tzaddikim of our past, they all had that this quality. And so, uh, and that, that's how that's how I interpret what she's saying. The fact that you <laughs> saved my son shows me shows me that. What he does now is better than the Right, because the, the miracle of the oil and whatever was connected to his own survival too. Right. In fact, yeah. it was Al Tanai that when she made the baking, she gave him first. This was purely lishma. This was a chesed purely lishma. She didn't. Uh, she, she. He didn't have any uh, anything to gain from it. Also, has the kid's mother yelling at him. What's the What's the say? What's the one? Just like grammatically, it doesn't sound good to me. What's the Z? Now I know what? this. Yeah, but usually whenever we see that, it's a Z. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Maybe because she's saying. Um, She's emphasizing that uh, an, a new insight, but yeah, usually atayadati. Maybe that's the whole point. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but you know, normally atayadati is a totally new idea. Maybe she's saying atazeyadati means that I knew you were a man of God in a certain way, but now I have now I see that you're a man of God in a complete way. You know, it could be something like that because now I see that you're holech bedarchei Hashem to do chesed. You know, it's not just a uh, it's not just a matter of the uh, of when it's instrumental to your own survival, like I thought before, and um, and so this now opens Eliyahu's mind to a new uh, vista. Something's wrong. Right. It's also, it, it definitely, it's, it's more the shema what he's doing. But like I was saying before, like he also has the mother there, like. Bugging out at him to save my child. Right. So it's not like he goes there willingly, like, let me go save the child and save the day. The woman is like, oh, you came here to kill my kid. Okay, fine. Well, yeah, but yeah, look, she didn't, ex I don't think, I, I mean, I'm not, again, I can't say for sure, but I don't, I didn't get the impression when she said that, that she was expecting Eliyahu to revive the kid. She was just screaming at him. In other words, when Elisha, revives the kid first of all he had nothing to do with the kid's death but when El when elisha revives the kid she comes and asks him please come revive the kid and when he wants to send gehazi she doesn't accept that she wants elisha to come himself right. right so so that's different here you don't that and maybe that's part of the point actually what you're saying actually it's a very good point that El that she didn't even think to ask eliyahu to do it because she didn't think he would care you understand? In other words, Elisha, she thought, remember the difference between Elisha and Eliyahu? We're going to hopefully get to see Elisha one day. Probably not. I mean, we're going to end up with Eliyahu. Maybe Elisha will be for uh, for, for the next year. Our goal is to develop Eliyahu's character and Yeah, we might not hit Elisha, although it would be nice. But maybe we can continue after this week and doing at least a once a week thing. And maybe that's what we can continue. But or whatever you guys want to do, we'll talk about it. If you want to do uh, something more in the halachic realm and do different areas of halacha that we can develop different ideas, that also might be good. Like uh, whatever.
But the, anyway, Eliyahu, Elisha, when, remember the lady wants Elisha to come live with her. She makes him an apartment. He doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't uh, ask to come live there. He, she says there's an Isha Elohim that comes by here all the time. Let's, in, let's make a kir, uh, aliyat kir ktana. And, you know, they put a table, they make him an apartment. They, they want it's to be close. Learning. Yeah, they do so many similar things that it's obviously a programmatic attempt to contrast the two, right? Elisha goes to the woman and says, what can I do for you? And give and says you're going to have a child, and then when the child dies, the wo- the woman gets on her horse, donkey, whatever, to go get Elisha to come revive the child. I don't think Eliyahu would ever give anyone a child, and I don't think he ever would have revived the child. I don't think that I don't think the woman expected him to take any interest. She was just fetching, she was just yelling at him, you know. And first. Exactly. And he comes all the way back. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, he and, and, true. Well, but she's perceiving him as she's blaming him. She's saying that it's because of him that the baby died, the, the boy died. But, and Eliyahu in the beginning only asks Hashem to revive the child for his own sake. He says that, uh, you know, why did you kill this child that I'm living with them? You know, it's bad for me. It's bad for business. What am I going to do now? The second time when he says, restore the child's life. So that's much more for his own sake. That's the, so the very fact that Eliyahu got involved, took responsibility and delivered here with no personal interest, no personal agenda involved in the end, makes the lady uh, changes the woman's perspective on uh, on Eliyahu. But that's the beginning of maybe he can get his perspective, he can change the way that the Jewish people relate to him uh, instead of seeing him as this kind of a stoic figure who is doing things his own way, who's kind of like in his own ivory tower existence, if he reaches out to the people and recognizes the value of their lives, he can make inroads with them. Eliyahu's story reminds me uh, sometimes of the story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Elazar in the cave, you know, where they kind of rejected society as superficial and people are all foolish and involved with material things and they had no patience for them. And they go and they live First, they go and live in the Beit Midrash and they're being and they're hiding out there, but then they feel that that's not secure enough. So they go and live in a cave and they have a river and a carob tree to help them survive all those years. It's almost like a, uh, that seems like Eliyahu Navi would be uh, very pleased with that kind of existence too. He wouldn't mind. You know, he's kind of, and when they come out, they have a zero tolerance for people who are involved in the practical matters of everyday life. And then when they and then eventually Shimon, Rabbi Shimon t- not only tones down his destructive attitude, but decides to do things litikun olam to try to improve society, building bathhouses and all this kind of stuff that he was mocking before and saying was nonsense before, because he comes to recognize the value of uh, of the uh, uh, of the human society 
even the human society that isn't on a perfect level of uh, perfection like himself. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't, you know, according to the Ushalmi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai basically wasn't religious. You know, he just, he just learned all day long. He didn't have to keep any mitzvot say. Uh, you know, the, uh, according to the Bavli, he kept some, but according to the Ushalmi, it was like uh, uh, even more, uh, even less. I mean, the, uh, the, the point is that uh, he was on such a level that he was exempt from most mitzvot say because he was just, his, his mind was on a totally, he was like a, a totally different creature. So it's very difficult to deal with average people when you're in that realm of thinking and that level. So yeah, he was like Eliyahu Navi. Reminds me of Eliyahu Navi a lot in that way. Um, yeah. So yeah, let's go a little bit further. Um, I don't want to go too into it because I don't want to cut it short. I think it's important. The initial meeting of Eliyahu with uh, Ovadia is important too, and then that segues into the meeting between the uh, the Kohane Abal and uh, Eliyahu. But it was many days. We don't know exactly what, how many days that is, what that means, but So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Hashem unilaterally decides to override Eliyahu's drought. But not totally, because basically what he's saying is now, Eliyahu, you can take action. You will see results and the results will cause the rain to come. Right. He's not just saying like one way of reading it is that basically uh, that that Hashem is vetoing the decree of Eliyahu after all these years. But it's but another way of reading it is not that he's vetoing the uh, decree of Eliyahu but that he's saying now the time is right or there's an opportunity for you to approach Ahav and effectively bring about a change so that they will have the zechut to receive rain again, even according to your midat adin. Right? So, it's, so some, I've seen some people say that this is kind of like Hashem saying, okay, enough is enough. But I'm not sure that that's what it means. I think another another way of reading it is that he's saying that there's an opportunity now to really effectuate change. And then, of course, we know Eliyahu is not going to be happy with that either, but that's another story. So, uh, but the uh, he go, he says, appear before Achav, and then I'm going to bring rain. Shomron is uh, the capital of uh, Malchut Israel, which was... Uh, Re, you know, revitalized and uh, and built up by Omri, the father of Achav, actually. Uh, oh, um, and it says, So Ovadia or Ovadiahu was a very from guy. He was a religious guy. He was a God fearing person. And he was in the administration of, of, of Achav. So it's, a, it's really kind of an interesting moment for there to be a meeting between Eliyahu, who has zero tolerance for Achav and has been living outside of the kingdom, more or less, 
for the past several years because of his absolute rejection of anything and everything that Achav stands for and will not partner with him in any way. And to see this guy, who is a religious guy, part of the administration of Achav. And Yareya Tashem Me'od, meaning he's a genuine God-fearing person. And Vayhi Bachriti Zevel et Nevi'ei Hashem, Vayikach Ovadiyahu Me'a Nevi'im, in Izevel's attempt to eradicate Judaism and replace it with Baal worship, she conducted a persecution against all the Nevi'ei Hashem, and Ovadiao placed 50 and 50, two, he saved 100 of them, putting them in caves and providing them with food. So he is a God-fearing person. Now, I would suggest, I would assume that Achav knew very well what Ovadia did. I don't think that that was done without the knowledge of Achav, but I do think it was done without the knowledge of Izevet. Meaning, Achav is a very ambivalent type of guy. So he's a per- there's, it's unlikely that Ovadiahu would be funneling food and water for 100 people on a daily basis without his boss having any idea what was going on. That would be hard to imagine. However, so, so I think that, that Achav had a don't ask, don't tell, hear no evil, see no evil policy when it came to whatever Ovadiao was doing. And the fact that Ovadiao was in the administration of Achav and he's a religious guy who obviously represents everything the opposite of what Izevel represents, again shows you that Achav is not 100% opposed to everything Jewish as he claims to be. Now, Ovadiahu, now Ovadiahu is going to be one of those people who's a controversial personality. He's going to be like a person that is, uh, he's going to be like, uh, I don't know, Mike Pence in the Trump administration. It's like, how can you, Mike Pence, a guy who won't, literally won't be alone with a woman who's not your wife, be with a guy who had three wives and half of them at the same time, you know, while he was, while he had an affair with the other one. It's like, how do these t- people go together? So some people will say, oh, how could such a moral guy, you know, uh, associate with a guy who not, does not represent moral values? The, you know, so, and this is always, this is often true when you have a corrupt, let's say, administration and you have certain individuals in the administration or a corrupt company or corrupt whatever, certain individuals in that, in that system who are good actors. And so they have a conflict because they could say, you know what, in protest, I'm leaving. I want nothing to do with this institution. I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to show my protest by having nothing to do with it. And everyone will be like, wow, what a hero. They're so great. Or they could stay a part of the corrupt institution and say, I'm going to try to make this better from within. I know it's an imperfect system. But if I leave it, it will just become worse. This way I stay in the system and I try to make it better using whatever influence I wield from within. It's a classic dilemma. What do you do when you're faced with a situation like that? Because if you abandon it, then the last decent person is abandoning it. So what's going to happen? On the other hand, if you stay in, everyone's going to consider you a part of the bad system and, uh, and, and, and it's going to tarnish you. And you're going to be, uh, and, and in a way, unwittingly, you're also going to be allowing that system to stay afloat 
even as you uh, even as you are trying to improve it from within, you're allowing all of its bad activities to stay afloat at the same time. Happens all the, this happened to, uh, by the way, in Long, especially on Long Island with the conservative synagogues in the uh, 70s and 80s. They had no rabbis to fill those pulpits and a lot of conservative shuls were headed by Orthodox rabbis who were looking for jobs. And so instead of, uh, so they said, hey, what's the bad thing? I'll go and I'll try to, uh, be Mekarev, the people on these conservative shuls. What they actually ended up doing was keeping those shuls open long enough for them to get conservative rabbis graduated from JTS who took over the jobs, right? That's what ended up happening. So in, in, in other cases, you have situations where like, for example, certain Jews worked kind of like with the Nazis, you know, like not, you know, not evil that way, but figuring if I'm in a position to have influence, I can control certain things. Maybe I can save some people. Maybe I can, you know, limit some of the damage. They rationalized being a part of an evil regime because they figured maybe they could be a voice of reason or at least mitigate some damage by being there. So Ovadiahu is like a character like that. So when he's going to encounter Eliyahu and Navi, we can imagine it's going to be awkward because Eliyahu is the type of person who has zero patience for the kind of person that Ovadiau is. He's exactly the opposite attitude towards Achav as Ovadiau. Ovadiau says, be part of the corrupt system, try to improve it and, and, and keep it, limit its damage. That was, and Eliyahu is reject the corrupt system and leave until they're ready to come to the table and make things better. Yes. Um, I don't think, I was wondering that also. I don't think so. I thought Obadiahu was. I thought Obadiah was much later than Navi, isn't he? He has to be. Doesn't Obadiah talk about Edom and everything? Malchut Edom. What? Edom comes around much later. As a kingdom, that's a much later concern than now when they're talking about the Malchut uh, Bavel and Ashur and all that. I, I'm, I, I, I don't think it would be the same person. Also, Ovadia was a gear. The, Ovad, the Ovadia, the, wasn't he also one of the, a gear also Ovadia, wasn't he? The Navi was a girl. And so they asked the Kuzari. That was one of the questions in the Kuzari, you know, because the, the Kuzari says only Jewish people can get Nivua. And so they asked, well, what about the girl? Okay, he's an exception. What does he say? According to the book, the Kuzari says that was a girl from Where do they get that from? Well, if Art School says it, you know, who can say otherwise? I'm not, I don't think that, that I don't think it's necessarily true. There could be more than one person named Ovadia, and it's not clear that, that it's true. But uh, I, but but I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying I I I don't. I'm not sure either way, but I, I'm not convinced that it is the same person. It could be. 
So, uh, but either way, the um, the uh, uh, it, it would be odd for uh, for the nivuot of Ovadia to have been delivered during this time because there was not a conflict with uh, with uh, you know the Edom messages seem more appropriate to a later period of history than this. So, um, but I'm not sure why art school has that. Maybe there's some midrashim that connect them. Much bigger. Edom was a vassal state to Israel at this point for the next few hundred years. The next hundred years. Yeah, they were only a threat much later. Was a threat? It was. It was like part of the governance of of, of, uh, of Israel at this point. Yeah, but they. But aren't the Nivu, I thought the nivuot of Ovadia that I remember are about destruction coming to Edom. And that's something that's characteristic of the Nivim Achronim, not the early Nivim. We have to look into it. We'll look into it. But for now, the main point I think is that Eliyahu and uh, and and uh, and Ovadiahu have very different ideas of what the best way to go about dealing with a bad regime is. Is the best way to go about dealing with a bad regime rejecting it and boycotting it until you force it to change, or is the best way allying yourself with it and trying to improve it from within? And of course, they're going not going to see eye to eye on that. And there's going to be a little bit of a clash, but it will lead eventually to the Nevi'eh Habal story, and that leads us to the close that so which hopefully we'll be able to do Ovadia and Achab's meeting and the Nevi'eh Habal tomorrow, and then we'll be able on Thursday to do the uh, the closing story of Eliyahu at uh, the mountain and uh, his retirement. So that's 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 the goal. Okay. All right. Um, what are your ideas for the Gemara tomorrow? Do you have any ideas in particular? Well, you if you want to do Agadot in Masechet there's a ton of them. If you want to do the ones in the first parak, there's entire Amudim and Dapim of Agadot. If you want to do Agadot, there are the the crazy stories in the of Chanina Ben Dosan, everything in in the third parak, we could do that. But I think I've given Shiurim on that before that are probably recorded somewhere, but we could do it. It's up to you. There's a lot of really, really nice agadot in the beginning, Peric. Just let whatever you want to do, we'll do it.